Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, I am not a big Star Wars fan. Uh, what I mean by that is not that I don't like Star Wars. What I mean by that is I have met people who l- really like Star Wars, and I understand uh, by comparison that whatever, if that's what a fan is, I'm not there yet. Uh, I'm not quite on their level. Um, I like Star Wars, but again, there are diehard fans who I have met who put me to shame. Uh, <laughs> But I do, know, I do know one thing that diehard fans know about Star Wars, and that, that there is a, that's that there is a controversy uh, related to some changes that have been made uh, to the original series. So some of you, if you know what I'm talking about already, congratulations, you can self-identify, you are a diehard Star Wars fan. Um, so in episode four, which is the first one, weird, uh, we meet Han Solo in the Moss Eisley Cantina for the first time. And he's cornered by this bounty hunter whose name I think is Greedo, uh, something like that. Greedo, okay, I'm getting some nods. Okay, that's helpful. And uh, Greedo, yeah, bounty hunter, Han Solo is like a smuggler and he's been caught. Uh, so Greedo's there and he's going to take him in or something like that. And in the original release of the film, Han Solo just kind of under the table, boom, shoots Greedo and, you know, gets away. He gets, he's just, he just, Pulls the trigger, no problem, I'm out of here. And so the reader, or not the reader, the viewer's first impression of Han Solo is kind of like, he's like a cold-blooded killer. Like he just pulls the trigger, no problem, I'm in trouble, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot this guy and get out of here. No questions, not a problem. Uh, and, uh, in, but, but, but there was a change that has been ta- made in the, I think it's in the Disney Plus release or maybe even before that. I'm not, again, I'm not, I'm, this isn't Lord of the Rings, I'm a little out of my comfort zone. Um, but at some point, a change was made to the film. So if you see it on Disney Plus or something like that, you'll see that they've kind of, with some editing and some fancy camera work, they have shifted things so that it looks like Greedo like, tries to shoot Han Solo, and then Han Solo gets him. So it's more like a self-defense thing, right? So it's, it, he's, he's not really a cold-blooded killer. He was just protecting himself. He didn't want to get shot. Uh, and the diehard fans apparently hated this change that was made to the original film. And my understanding uh, is the reason for that is if Han Solo started out as this cold-blooded killer, well, where he ends up, sorry, if you've not seen it, it's been out for like 40 years, come on, uh, spoilers, he turns out to be a hero, right? So he, it's, it's this crazy, amazing uh, story arc, this character arc, where he, turns out, he goes from being a cold-blooded killer to the hero who's saving the day, right? Uh, and, but if he starts out as kind of a not that bad, the arc is much less impressive, it, it doesn't really, I mean, it's like, okay, cool, he got a little better, but if you, if you started out where the original film had him, had him starting out, that's a beautiful, amazing kind of redemption uh, story to his arc. And so uh, the reason I share that is I think the, the diehard fans' angst with the changes that have been made are because they understand something about how narrative works. In a narrative, like a movie, you show who someone is by what they do. It's their, their actions that will often communicate some truth about who they are. So if Han Solo is just a cold-blooded killer pulling the trigger to get away, that's who he is. Uh, but if he's just not that bad, you know, oh, oh, he was just, it was self-defense. It's not that bad. Uh, and I share that because we're in that kind of material now in Matthew's gospel. We're in a narrative section. 
So uh, previously, for the past, past like five months or so, we were in Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, this great uh, sermon of the kingdom where Jesus is preaching, he's proclaiming the kingdom of God. And then things shift, where what Jared started us last week in Matthew 8, where it's, we're now in a narrative section where he goes from proclaiming what the kingdom is like, telling us what it's like, to showing us, to displaying realities of the kingdom, which is actually uh, Matthew himself uh, gave us that outline. If you, if you flip back a page or two in your Bible, Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, it says, He, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So that's, that's the outline for Matthew 5 through 9. Matthew 5 through 7 is him teaching and proclaiming. And then Matthew 8 and 9 is him healing and showing what the kingdom is like. So the question we have to have in our minds, as in any narrative, is what does this show us? What does Jesus' behavior, his actions here, what does it show us about him and his kingdom? And so to answer that question, we're going to take a slightly different approach this morning. Uh, we're going to first just kind of walk through verse by verse this whole passage. So there's nine verses. We'll take one of them at a time, just kind of letting the story unfold before us. So we want to feel the narrative tension as we, as we go through it. Uh, the second thing we're going to do is we're going to step back. We're going to consider two doctrines that this passage teaches us. We'll do some theological reflection. And then thirdly and finally, we'll consider three applications for us today from this text. So that's, that's our outline. Nine verses, two doctrines, and three applications. If you're a note taker, you're welcome. We're, we're organized today. So uh, first, nine verses. Let's, let's walk through the narrative. Verse five. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Okay, just a couple background details here, right? So this is, again, in narrative, this is setting up the setting. So this is where we get where Jesus is and who he's interacting with. And the first thing we learn is that he goes to Capernaum. In our passage last week, we read about after the sermon, he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And here, he's setting up his base for ministry. So basically from now until chapter 21, when he goes to Jerusalem, Capernaum is his base. That's where Jesus bases his ministry out of. And that's pretty weird because Capernaum was a like no-name fishing village on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee that has no historical significance at this time. When Jesus gets there, there's no historical significance. There's no theological or religious significance. It's a, it's a sleepy little fishing town. And yet this is where the Son of God decides to, after his great sermon of the kingdom, this is where he decides to establish his base for ministry. And when he gets there, he is met by a centurion. So this man, uh, as you've seen Gladiator, you have some idea, I guess. Um, he is uh, kind of middle management in the Roman military. So he's got, uh, you know, officers above him, but a good number of guys below him. Uh, very much kind of the backbone of the Roman military. But more importantly, in the setting here, he is a Gentile in the Jewish Homeland. So he's in, uh, in Israel, but he is there as, uh, not only as a Gentile, but as part of an occupation force. So Israel, throughout their history, if you've read the Old Testament, you get a lot of this. They've been conquered. 
uh, like again and again and again by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and then the Medo-Persians uh, and then the Greeks in the intertestamental period and then here Rome. Uh, so they've been through the ringer. Uh, so anyway, this is, he's part of an occupation force in their land. So don't think of him necessarily as the you know, friendly police officer who is helping grandma across the street with her groceries. He's more like the Gestapo officer who you know, is shaking down grandma to make sure she's not fomenting rebellion. Uh, so that's, that's kind of the, the setting there. We've got, he's in Capernaum and he meets a centurion. Verse 6, the man says to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering Terribly. Here we kind of get introduced to the problem, the, the rising action in the narrative. Uh, the centurion's servant is, is suffering some kind of painful paralysis. It doesn't give us much information about what it is. It, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, other than, I'll, I'll just mention, the Greek is a little more violent. I think the ESV uh, yeah, it says lying paralyzed. He's lying paralyzed. I, I think a more literal translation would be he's been thrown down paralyzed. So it's, it's almost, it almost sounds like there's an accident that's happened, like he's fallen off a roof and he's just like screaming on the ground with broken legs. It's, it's this urgent, horrible situation he's in. Verse 7, and he, now Jesus, he said to him, I will come and heal him. So immediately, Jesus agrees, I will come to your house and I will heal your servant. And, and we probably think, cool, that's, I mean, that's what Jesus does, right? Uh, if, if you are hungry, you go to a restaurant. If your car's broken, you go to a mechanic. If you need healing, miraculously, you go to Jesus, right? It's just, it's what he does. Uh, but actually, this should be surprising because, again, this is a Gentile who's part of an occupation force in the Jewish homeland. He comes to a Jewish rabbi and says, I need you to heal my servant, uh, actually, first century Jews at this time had rules uh, where they believed going into a Gentile's household kind of communicated some ritual impurity to you. So if you went in his house, you had to undergo this period of cleansing before you could uh, practice the Jewish religion, the Jewish religious rites. Uh, but Jesus doesn't care. He says, despite all that, I'm not going to hesitate. I will come and I will heal him. Let's take verses 8 and 9 together now. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. So here we reach the, the climax, the, the crucial point in the narrative, because the reason I say that is because in verse 10, Jesus says, it, it says that Jesus marveled. So whatever's happening here in verses 8 and 9, the Son of God, the Word made flesh, is blown away. He marvels. He's amazed at what this man says in verses 8 and 9. So what, what's, what's going on here? It's important we understand it. So even after Jesus agrees to come, he doesn't hesitate. Again, there's, you know, some Jewish kind of first century rules that might deter Jesus from coming. But he says, I'm coming. I'm going to come heal him. Even after that, the centurion says, no, no, no. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Again, weird. We, we would expect a, a pagan Roman soldier 
to be unimpressed by just another you know, upstart Jewish rabbi with some crazy ideas about monotheism. Uh, and, and yet, he sees something in Jesus that he shouldn't be able to see. He has some clarity on Jesus' divine identity and his own lowliness. He's like, I, I know who I am and I know who you are and you should not be in my house. And more than that, he knows what Jesus can do. He says, only say the word and my servant will be healed. And then he makes this comment about Jesus' authority. He uses this kind of metaphor from his own life. He knows how authority structures work. He's got soldiers and servants who do his bidding. He tells them to do it, and guess what? They do it. He has this effective authority, and he knows Jesus can just say a word and his servant will be fine. Remember last week, Jared talked about the leper who Jesus touched and healed. And, and we realized from this passage, Jesus didn't have to touch him because he, he can just say the word and he'll be healed. So, so what is it? What is it that the, the centurion sees? He, he knows he can heal. He knows Jesus can heal. But not because he's got some you know, magical potion that heals broken legs, if such a thing existed. Uh, he knows Jesus can heal, but not because Jesus has some like in with the healing forces of the universe. He knows Jesus can heal because the power to make whole is something Jesus has in himself. It is an authority Jesus has in himself. So look at this. He, he starts off, he, he calls him Lord, which is actually a normal thing to say. It's kind of like saying sir in the first century. It's, it's just, you know, Lord, sir, it's, it's that kind of thing. But... It's also the word the Greek Old Testament uses to translate the divine name Yahweh. So there's something going on here. And he says, Lord, and then, and then uh, he says, you can make this happen by your word. He, he knows Jesus has an authority to speak a word and broken legs become whole. Chaos becomes order. Authority like we read of in Psalm 33. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. So when this centurion sees this upstart Jewish rabbi, who he should have nothing to do with, by all rights, should have nothing to do with, he sees the, the capital O, one, who made the universe, who put the cosmos in its place, who spoke, and it came to be. He sees a glimpse of what Rapper Shai Lin uh, talks about in his song, Hypostatic Union. I told you guys last time I preached, early in my discipleship, Christian rap played a big role. And sorry, you're going to get another rap lyric. I'm not going to rap it for you. You're welcome. But anyway, this is what Shai Lin says. He says, nothing can escape Jesus' sovereign rule. From the farthest galaxy to the smallest molecule. So who deserves to gain fame? 
By the word of his power, the universe is maintained. In other words, put the cosmos back on the shelf. Without Christ, reality would collapse on itself. Jesus, the marvelous author of all consciousness, beyond what the sharpest biologist acknowledges, he needs no archaeologist or smart apologist. He sees all hearts, omnipresent cardiologist, master of logic, macrocosmic novelist, following any other god is just preposterous. Sorry, I couldn't hold back from just doing a little rhyming thing. Thank you. Thank you. It's a very good song. You should check it out. But I want you to see the authority. Do you see the authority? Jesus has the authority to say, let there be light, and it is so. That's what the centurion sees. He's not writing rap songs like Shylin just yet. It's a couple thousand years away. But he has a glimpse of this glorious hidden reality in this Jewish rabbi. He, he does not see a traveling preacher with good ideas. He does not see some like magician with some power to heal. He sees the king who rules the cosmos because he made it. A king who has effective authority over everything. He sees that when Jesus says jump, every atom in the universe says how high. So verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. So Jesus does not answer the man right away. Actually, he turns to the crowds and he takes kind of a teaching moment. Uh, And it's actually, if possible, what he says here is even more shocking because he's not merely amazed that the man recognized him for who he is, he's amazed at who the man is who recognized him for who he is. Let me say that again. He's not just amazed that the man recognized him for who he is, he's amazed at who the man is who recognized him. It's not a religious scholar with some knowledge. It's not a a politician with some power. It's not even a Jew looking for his God or the, the Messiah. It's a Gentile part of an occupation force in a lowly fishing village who sees who Jesus is and what he can do. And no one in Israel has seen it like he has. Not a single one of the the ethnic heirs of the promises, the possessors of the Old Testament, none of them had faith like this Gentile centurion. In light of that, Jesus continues, verse 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So here, Jesus kind of picks, not picks, but is drawing together two promises in the Old Testament and bringing them into one. So the the first promise from the Old Testament, this shows up numerous times, but the promise is that many will come from east and west. There are a number of passages in the Old Testament that, that promise this ingathering of God's people from across, around the nations to the land of Israel. So uh, another one example of this would be Isaiah 43. The Lord says to his people, fear not for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. So there's this bringing together of the people of God that is promised in the Old Testament. 
But what's important is that every single, with probably zero exceptions, every single first century Jew who read that would have understood it to mean God bringing together the Jewish people from east, west, and north, and south. So as I mentioned, Israel had been conquered a lot, and every time they got conquered, uh, say Babylon, for example, would, would come to Jerusalem and the other cities and take the Jewish people, part of them, out to their homeland. So at this point in the first century, there's this diaspora. There's Jews spread across the Mediterranean world, and, and there's this hope, this promise, that they're actually, all of them are going to come back. That's the first promise Jesus refers to. The second uh, is that of the Messianic banquet. So again, there's a number of passages in the Old Testament that refer to this. I'll just kind of summarize. It's this, this promise of this meal at the end of time where uh, all of God's people will be at the same table and, and feast with their God. They will feast with the heroes of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Uh, it's this kind of picture of this eschatological hope of, of, of unity and joy and feasting together at the end of time. And so Jesus, he, he puts these two promises Together, so, so all, the, all the first century Jews, right, they, they thought that coming from east and west was going to be uh, exiled Israelites, but he, he actually changes that in a, in a small way. In, in Matthew 2, right, we saw pagan wise men coming from the east to see, to see the Christ child. And then here in this passage, he's, he's talking about this promise to a Roman centurion, a Gentile, probably from Rome, from the West. So they're coming from East and West, meaning Gentiles from around the world. So we see he's he's expanding this promise. It's Jew and Gentile alike. All people are coming to this kingdom. Not not all people without exception, but all people without distinction. That that where you come from will not be the deciding factor in your inclusion in God's kingdom. And Jesus links that with this second promise, and he expands it too. So these Gentiles from east and west will feast with the heroes of the Jewish faith. The Messianic banquet is the Messianic banquet, the the Jewish Messiah, but seated with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are Roman centurions from Capernaum. Lowly foreigners and great patriarchs both have a seat at the table. That's the good news. But then Jesus pivots to the bad news, verse verse 12. So there's those who are at the table. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, There's no denying this is a difficult verse in the Bible. Uh, By difficult, I I don't mean that it's, uh, it's weird because Jesus is preaching about hell. That's clearly what weeping and gnashing of teeth, it's a common biblical image for hell. It's not weird to hear Jesus preach about hell. He preaches about hell more than anyone in the whole Bible. It's weird, it's difficult, because sons of the kingdom, when you read that, you're probably like, oh, that's probably what I want to be, right? A son of the kingdom, that sounds, sounds like a good thing. I want to, sons of the kingdom, and they're the ones who are thrown into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So who, who are these sons of the kingdom? Who is Jesus talking about? Well, in the context, in, this, in light of this centurion's faith and this comment, he makes it, no one in Israel has had faith like this. It seems to be that the sons of the kingdom are the Jewish people who do not share the faith of the centurion. 
So the Jewish people who have rejected their own Messiah, they're called sons because they have this this genealogical link. They are the historical ethnic sons of the kingdom, the ones who receive the promises of God in the first place. But the problem is that they assume they have a right to the kingdom. They think that by virtue of their heritage, they already belong. They're very much the opposite of the centurion who who says, I I have no rights before you. You, I'm not worthy to have you in my house. Instead, they just presume to belong. So Jesus is is preaching what we find Paul also preaching in in Romans chapter 3. It's a common uh, New Testament uh, point. I'll just read Romans chapter 3 starting in verse 21. He says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned, we're together in our depravity, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised Jews by faith and the uncircumcised Gentiles through faith. So grace is a gift. It is never a right. It is never something you have intuitively in yourself because you have some kind of, uh, you deserve it in some way. There's no distinction. No one can presume a seat at the table by virtue of their heritage. And so the presumptive sons of the kingdom will be thrown out. If if you were here a few weeks ago uh, when I preached, I I talked about, I did a a brief uh, Greek grammar lesson, so you probably all fell asleep during that time. It's okay. Uh, A divine passive is something that happens in the New Testament where there's a verb that does not have a subject and it means that God is the one doing it. We have another one here. When it says, will be thrown, we don't know, it doesn't say who's doing it, but the clear implication is that God himself will judge those who presume on their membership in his kingdom. That is the danger facing those who presume. Verse 13 And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. It almost feels like this passage ends with a fizzle. So so the, the healing, which seemed like the point, it's just done. It's just check. Okay, he's healed. Like not even a wave of the hand. Jesus just does the healing, and it's almost like anticlimactic. There's this big conversation in between, and the healing is just kind of done, no problem. It certainly confirms the centurion's faith. Jesus himself seems to say that. But I think here we see the healing wasn't really the point after all. That's our our walkthrough. That's our nine verses. So with this text in front of us, we're now going to do some theological reflection. So two doctrines that this passage teaches us. First, we're going to tackle how this passage informs our theology of faith, our theology of faith. So uh, you are all in Texas. Maybe you live here, maybe you don't. Uh, Faith is probably one of the most commonly used and most commonly misused words in the world and certainly in the South today. 
everyone in Texas has a, a wood sign in their living room or maybe in their bedroom or outside their door that says faith. Uh, and if you don't have one, you just got here from California, welcome to Texas. You'll get one soon. Uh, but, but what we mean by faith uh, is really just, uh, and I, don't mean, I genuinely don't mean to condemn those of you who have a faith sign. Uh, don't hear me say that's a joke. Um, what we often mean when we talk about faith in our world today is this generic blind optimism. This generic blind optimism that like faith means the universe will work it out. Uh, we don't know who's going to work it out. We don't know how it will be worked out. We don't even know what it working out even means. Uh, but that's, that's what we mean by faith. The universe will work it out. It's this generic blind optimism. But the centurion here clarifies for us what biblical faith is, what faith means in the Bible. And generic blind optimism is pretty much the exact opposite. Because this faith is a specific knowledgeable expectation. Let me break that down. So first, faith is specific. It's not some generic hope in the universe. The, the centurion is not going around saying, can you heal my servant? Can you heal my servant? Can you heal my... No, no, he comes directly to Jesus as the one who he knows he needs. His faith is specific. He, verse five, he's appealing to him. He's not asking the crowd. There's a ton of people there. But he comes to Jesus. Genuine faith, real faith, has an object, one in whom faith is placed. It is specific. Second, faith is knowledgeable. It is not blind. It has a basis, a, a foundation. So the centurion knows who Jesus is. He knows who he is, and, and he looks at him. He sees the, the power that shaped the stars. He sees his, his power, his authority. He knows that he is the one who can Heal. Now, again, I'm, I'm not saying he had some fully fleshed out Christology, uh, but he gets a clear glimpse of who Jesus is, what Jesus can do, and that is all he needs. He may not be able to put all the parts together, but he sees the whole. So true faith is specific, it's knowledgeable, and it's also expectant. Uh, the centurion is not simply optimistic that Jesus will heal his servant. He's not saying, like, you know, see how it goes. Let's give it a shot. Maybe, maybe it'll, it'll be better, you know. No, he's, he's, he says, say a word and he'll be healed. He's fully expectant. And that flows, obviously, from the first two pieces. He knows who Jesus is and what Jesus can do. So think about it like this. If you were to drop your car off somewhere to get it fixed, what matters is, is who you hand it off to and, and what they can do. So if, if you just, you know, drive your car to a field, leave it there, and I happen to walk across it with a sledgehammer, like your faith in your car getting fixed, maybe, you know, this generic blind optimism, your faith will fail you, okay? I'm not the guy, I do not have the tools, and this is not where this happens, right? But if you take your car to a mechanic uh, and and your, your faith is specific. This is really a mechanic. This guy is a mechanic. Uh, it is knowledgeable. This mechanic knows what he's doing. I know, he's, look, he's got the, you know, the pedigree or whatever. I don't know, mechanic school, whatever they do to learn these things. It is specific. It's, not, it's knowledgeable and it's expected. He's going to fix it. I fully expect it. My, my car's dropped off. It's going to be fixed. That faith will not fail you. 
And that's what genuine faith in Jesus looks like. It's not some vague hopefulness that things will work out. It's a focus on him as the one that you need more than anything. The one who, who can enable you to stand before the God of the universe clean and forgiven from every one of your sins. He's the one you need, the, the God who became man to reconcile man to God. He's the one who can do it. He has paid the price that you owed. And so when you come to him, you fully expect him to do what he has promised to do. That's the first doctrine, the nature of faith. Our passage's focus, however, is really on this second, did I say promise, I meant doctrine, the second doctrine, the people of faith. We've looked at the nature, the theology of faith, second doctrine, the people of faith. Who has this faith? Who looks to Jesus with this specific, knowledgeable expectation? Remember, what Jesus marvels at is not the measure of this man's faith, but the man who has even a measure of faith. And he uses that, this pagan Gentile soldier, right? He uses that to teach the crowds that the messianic banquet at the end of time, which is certainly a metaphor in, in certain regards for our eternal home, for heaven, if you want to think about it like that, new heavens, new earth, that table is bigger and broader than anyone realized. Get this, verse 11, Jesus says, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now turn in your Bible one page or look at the screen, chapter nine, verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. You see that the very next time in Matthew's gospel, someone is reclining at table, sharing a meal, after he talks about this messianic banquet at the end of time, the very next time, it's a bunch of sinners with Jesus. That's the image we should have of this feast. Who, who belongs at the king's table? Who, who, who is this king anyway? Right? One who sets up his headquarters in a quiet fishing village north in Galilee that no one's ever heard of. Right? This, this one who, who rides a donkey into his kingdom. This one who was born in a manger, as we just sang. This king who lays down his life for his people. If that's our king, maybe you'll be surprised at who else has a seat at his table. At who the people of faith are. Uh, when I was in seminary, there was a professor in my school who had a son who was about, uh, I think, 16 years old, who was severely mentally handicapped. Uh, and maybe the intellectual level of a, a six- or seven-year-old at, at best. And uh, the professor would tell this story about one time he and his son went on this uh, road trip together, and when they get in the car, uh, this CD, uh, which those of you who are young don't know what I'm talking about, it plays music. Um, uh, the CD was kind of auto-loaded in his, his van and started playing, and it was an audiobook of the Book of Revelation, which I guess when you're a seminary professor, that's what you listen to on car rides. Who in the world does that? Anyway, 
Um, his, his, he said to his son, like, oh, you know, we can change this. We can listen to something else. And his son said, no, no, I'd, I'd like to listen. And so for this, I don't know how many hours long car ride, uh, he and his son listened to the entire book of Revelation. Uh, and at the end, uh, you know, it's over. He turns to his son, this mentally handicapped boy, and he says, did you, did you understand any of that? Uh, and his son looked at his dad and he said, God wins. When I was in college, I went on a mission trip to Greece, uh, and when I was there, I met an Iranian guy named Farshad, who had probably the craziest story of anyone I've ever met. Um, Farshad, uh, again, born in Iran, Muslim, uh, fled Iran, I can't remember why, some difficulty with his family, fled the country, I think he got shot at on his way out, made his way all the way up to England. Uh, in England, got mixed up with a gang and ended up in prison, I think, for stealing something, and is in an English prison and has a, a, a Christian chaplain come, share the gospel with him, and he puts his faith in Jesus. And on paper, Farshad and I have absolutely nothing in common, almost nothing. I mean, this, uh, you know, Iranian and an American, and ex-convict, uh, and, you know, a goody two-shoes who's had, like, one, maybe two speeding tickets. <sighs> but we sat and we talked for hours and hours and hours, and that conversation remains one of the sweetest, most encouraging, most incredible conversations of my entire life. Not because Farshad and I had a lot in common, but because we had one thing in common— we love the same king. One more story. Uh, at a church I was, I was previously at, uh, I was serving in the, the youth ministry, and uh, I met a woman there. I was kind of new to the church. I didn't know her very well. Uh, and we were just kind of chatting, getting to know each other. Uh, and it was one of those conversations where someone tells you two things, and uh, when you put them together, you realize they didn't tell you something else. Uh, you can kind of piece together. Um, uh, she talked about how she'd been raised in the church, uh, how she'd been a Christian for a long time uh, and uh, had been serving there for a long time. Uh, and she mentioned she had an 18-year-old daughter. And as we continued talking, she mentioned that she'd been married to her husband for almost 17 years. And I'm sitting there, you know, doing the math in my head, and... Um, yeah, and I, I say this to my absolute shame, but there was this really ugly, wicked, self-righteous thing that happened in my heart uh, where I, I started thinking, man, you said you were raised in the church. Did no one ever teach you what the Bible says about biblical morality or, and sexuality? I was scandalized that she was serving in church ministry, some with publicly obvious sins in her past. Uh, and I'm, I'm embarrassed and ashamed to tell that story, uh, not only because it reveals the wickedness and self-righteousness in my own heart, but because I was missing one of the most fundamental realities of the gospel, that these are the people Jesus calls. That's what I'm trying to show you with, with these three stories. These are the people of faith, not just the, you know, PhD, high education, maybe study theology people, but the mentally handicapped boy who says God wins. 
not just the Westerner who grew up with the the right morals, but the former Muslim ex-convict. He calls them from east and west. And not only those who've always had their life together, or at least looked like it, but those who have messed up big time in really obvious, visible ways, and yet found grace in Christ. At his table, he welcomes the humble and the lowly, anyone who will simply look to Jesus and say, that's my king. Those are the people of faith. Those are the ones who Jesus calls. So in light of these nine verses and these two doctrines, I have three applications for us, church. First, an exhortation. The exhortation is this. You may be surprised at who else has a seat at the table of Jesus, but you must not be scandalized. You may be surprised at who has a seat at the table of Jesus, but you must not be scandalized. There's nothing wrong with being surprised. In fact, being surprised makes a lot of sense. Jesus is amazed, right? When, when When blind eyes see or a dead heart beats, we should be surprised. That's amazing. But if we're scandalized that that person has a seat at the table, if we're offended by that, we've missed the point of the gospel entirely. Don't be like I was. Don't don't have that wicked impulse, that, that feeling of scandal when someone with an obvious sin that they could share in the kingdom of God. Don't be like that. Instead, church, let us be a gathering of people that welcomes and celebrates the far reaches of God's grace. When a single mom with three kids from three dads shows up on a Sunday morning and puts her faith in Jesus and wants to get baptized, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. When a guy sits next to you on Sunday morning and you can see his drug addiction in his shaking hands and in his face, invite him to your community group. Don't, don't, don't have him babysit your kids just yet, but, but welcome him. Share the grace of God with him. When, when you meet someone and something just feels a little bit off, when you meet someone and you just you kind of want to write them off, you, maybe you think sinfully, this isn't really the kind of person we're looking for here. Repent, brothers and sisters. Repent of that impulse and celebrate God's grace in their life. That's my exhort- exhortation. We may be surprised, but we must not be scandalized. Second application a warning, a warning. Jesus is very, very clear that there are those who presume upon the grace of God and will on the last day hear him say, I never knew you. You cannot presume or pretend to make it seem like you belong. That will fail you. Uh, one thing I've done a lot with, with my brothers and, and cousins growing up is we go snowboarding in Colorado. I had an aunt who lived there, uh, and we could stay at her house, and she had a, a personal trainer who was a professional snowboarder, which was great. He would take us out uh, and, you know, give us some, some tips and, and help us improve uh, and all these things. Uh, and I am an adequate snowboarder, but after hanging out with him, I am really good at pretending that I'm an amazing snowboarder. Uh, by that, I mean I can do one ski lift ride with him and then just repeat everything he says to me to someone else, and they'll be like, this guy knows his stuff. Wow, right? 
Uh, and we all, we all do that, right? In our, our various interests in life, we all, you know, in some ways, we pretend we're more confident, more or comp- competent, more involved than we really are. But the real danger is that pretension becomes presumption and we begin to fool ourselves. If I do that with snowboarding, like I'm in danger because I might go off a cliff thinking that I'm actually that great. But if you do that when it comes to Jesus, the danger is far greater. We all know how to pretend to belong in church. We know how to speak the language, dress the right way, fill your calendar with church things, attend every Sunday. You do that long enough and you will begin to presume that you really do belong at the table, that you have a right to it, that you deserve it. But brothers and sisters, friends, know that on the last day, that pretension, that presumption will be unmasked. And you will be cast into judgment. Jesus is very, very clear. So beware presumption. Check your heart. No one deserves a seat at his table. Trevin Wax, who's a Christian author, a professor, writes, Hell is full of people who think they deserve heaven. Heaven is full of people who know they deserve hell. It's a sobering reality, but it also points us to the good news. So our third application, very briefly, an invitation. Friends, you two are invited to this feast. Whatever it is you think disqualifies you from having a seat at Jesus' table, congratulations, your sense of disqualification is the very thing you need to get there. Come to the cross of Jesus Christ where you find you have nothing to prove. You have nothing to boast of in yourself. Like the centurion, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. You don't have a heritage or a morality that gives you any kind of standing. You just confess your unworthiness. You look to him in faith and you will find that he will not turn you away. Let's pray. God, you are full of grace and wisdom and justice and glory. And we have nothing we could ever offer you, God. We are not worthy. And yet, it is the unworthy who you delight to call. Father, I pray you would awaken faith. Pray you would convict presumptive hearts. I pray, Father, that we would love the far reaches of your grace to the surprising sinners because our own salvation, God, is a great surprise. It's a great shock. It's not something we could ever anticipate, Father. We were not looking for you. We were enemies, and yet you called, and we came. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to walk in faithfulness today and every day in obedience to your word. Amen.